Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is an old friend from college. Aram was that kid that everyone wanted to hang out with because of his loyalty, his kindness, and his constant good humor. That's not to say, though, that he didn't get into his share of trouble, which also seemed to be quite constant. Somehow we completely disconnected after college, but I always wondered what he was up to and how his life progressed. Thankfully, with the help of social media, I connected with him again sometime last year and was in awe when I noticed that he was involved with a chimpanzee sanctuary in Sierra Leone, Africa. At first, I found it funny and just couldn't understand how he could have ended up there. But as I read more on the Takugama Chimpanzee Sanctuary, its creation, its mission, and its crucial contribution, I was completely intrigued. On this episode, Aram shares his journey on discovering his calling, and we have quite possibly one of the most interesting conversations about how the Takugama Chimpanzee Sanctuary has not only saved the species, but in doing so, is completely transforming Sierra Leone into a leader in ecotourism, social and economic development, education and innovation, environmental protection, and more importantly, wildlife preservation. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dude, honestly, it's uh, it's so good to see you, uh, and we're we're gonna. <laughs> It's it's difficult for me not to take you seriously because I mean, um, you're doing serious stuff. It's just that every time I think about you, I think of the crazy shit we did back in college. Yeah. And uh, when you popped up in social media, and I'm like, what is he doing? What? How? How yeah. is this even possible? It's such a such a contrast be- between who we knew and who you became, kind of thing. Not not saying that you were a bad kid or anything. It's just that. Yeah. You know, I would have never imagined you uh being in that sort of element right yeah but uh like first of all how are you like it's been it's been forever uh i mean i think after cgip i don't think i ever saw you yeah i mean it's true i mean i'm i'm good i'm i'm really good you know thanks thanks for asking it's just uh sometimes sometimes you realize especially this year a lot of time to reflect and go over the the years um you realize there's no there's no real need to 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 go back all the time and say to tell yourself how did i get to this level i think it's just a more of a thing of realization of of where you are and and what you're doing and thinking about what where you still what's still in front of you focusing on that right uh but yeah it's a surreal thing i must admit myself you know sometimes family get-togethers or even my partner when we're talking and reminiscing sometimes it comes out and I tell her about the things that you know the the bad things I've done in, in the past and uh and she has a hard time believing it to the point where she says if we met back then I don't think we'd be together now um, <laughs> so you see it's complicated to put, put that into context but what it's happened? important for me to tell her these things so so what happened to you like after college what happened tell me a little bit your journey uh because i mean and it's not as if i expected to to see every yeah. person every day i mean you understand the reality that everyone kind of grows uh into their element and they do what yeah. they have to do and stuff and life 
you know, uh, yeah. kicks in. But, you know, time to time, I mean, we're such a small little bubble here, right? Montreal. I mean, you're going to yeah. eventually run into some people somewhere. Either, well, obviously later on there was university, so there was a lot of those kids there. But eventually, yeah. you know, you're going to run into people. Uh, and you were just nowhere. And uh, and many times we were asking with the guys, we're like, whatever happened to Aram? You know, so what happened? Okay, tell me, like college finishes, what happens to Aram? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's just a case of, you know, you're at a stage in life where you've, you've gone to, you know, college and now you're looking at university and trying to figure out who you are, what are you going to do, and, and planning out the next sort of phase, the chapters, the, the, the what's ahead. And I struggled with that. I did. You know, I university university went well, got the grades more or less, nothing, nothing outstanding, but managed to get to a level where, you know, you're in a good position. But there's a lot of things that, that come with that. You're in a good position, uh, and then and then you need to look at the job market. So that that for me was, you know, sort of a, a flash of reality. After after university, didn't get get into get in, didn't get the job that you're sort of I was hoping for. There was a big sort of disconnect there. You're studying international business. That's what I studied, and then you get into this tech company, which I knew nothing about. And, and that's your first job. So it's a, it's a division. You, you know, you study that, but then you're getting into something else. I struggled in the sense that by the time after that job, I got into, finally, I got into what I wanted to do, international business, consulting, you know, expansion and advising. And I realized even that's not what I want to do. Right. So then that's scary. You know, you studied all those years and then you finally get into what you consider your dream job. And then you realize, oh, that's a scary thought. And I felt really uh, almost like um, in, a, in, a, in a concerned state, you know, and it affects, affects everything that you do. For sure. So, so that put me into a bit of a, not necessarily a tailspin, but you're not, you're not happy. You're sort of, you're isolating yourself more and, and you're not sort of, it it affects you basically. So I think that's that's the hard hard thing to, to come to terms with. Yeah, you know, you're not the only one, right? Because and this, and I've said on many podcasts before, and other conversations that I have, there's something, and I'm not saying our our education system here is flawed, but there's something about it yeah. that needs to be reexamined. Because, and you're yeah. not the only one. I was in I was in the same situation where I reached university, and I was like, yeah. now what? At least you got to study. You thought you knew what you wanted, and you studied it, right? And then later on, you yeah. realized that once you got into the environment, you thought, well, maybe this is not for me. So that you started yeah. everything that brought you up until that period, right? Until the point. Yeah. But I got into university and I didn't even know what to do. I was yeah. lost entirely. I was like, okay, okay, what am I doing now? To the point where I had no clue about programs, about future, nothing. Yeah. So I just took, uh, what are they called? Electives, whatever, in politics. Yeah. And I just found a niche that was interesting to me. I was like, okay, this is actually very interesting. I mean, maybe I'll just... Yeah take this program right and that's what happened but it's funny because even when i was studying i i kind of convinced myself that there's no way in hell that i'll find yeah. a job working in politics like what is like what do you do you What's know? Like, yeah I, I found it interesting it was an interesting topic and we learned so much and the professors were yeah. experienced individuals 
And it just happened by luck that I fell into politics and had a career, right, in, in politics. But you're yeah. not the only one. And at, I mean, there's so many kids, you know, at that time, like you're in your mid 20s, you have, you're looking forward yeah. to like this entire life. And then, yeah. like, you, you realize, okay, I took a wrong turn somewhere because this is really far from what I wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how did how did that bring you uh, to to going to Africa? Because we're going to talk about uh, about I find it very interesting what you're involved in, and we're going to talk yeah. about the organization and everything that you're doing. But how do you how do you go from you know this cosmopolitan city Montreal with you know all the prospects yeah. and you you're right next to the U.S. if ever you want to branch up or whatever, and then you just leave all that behind and you go to Africa. Before, before I went to Africa, I spent close to two years in Chile, about a year and a half, and I was doing some consulting work there as well. Okay. And, and that life was, in, in many ways, you know, surreal for different reasons. I was living on the beach, yeah. um, nice, nice apartment, right on the beach. I, I mean, for, you, can't get any, you can't get better than that. But again, again, something missing, a void. It felt, it felt I'm still chasing something that doesn't exist in, in those terms. So, you know, I, I, I just came to the conclusion that, uh, well, I can't continue living like this either. I mean, everything is good. You're in a good surrounding, weather, circumstances, and, and you know, a close circle of friends. I did manage to make good friends there as well. But it feels like living the life of a retired man. There's no, you know, your, your, your set of ambitions, you know, you don't have a push. And I felt that that flame is, is sort of dying, dwindling as well. So I felt... Well, this is not working as well, so I need to go back. But I, what I learned from there is, and I'll and I'll explain it this way. Maybe it'll make more sense. I don't think I would have been able to go directly from Montreal to Africa. I needed something in between, and and Chile Chile is not quite like Canada, so it's it's still a developing, uh, an emerging market. So, and then and then you can see. There was a quite, I mean, there was a jump. There was a quite, I mean, a gap between Canada and Chile in terms of the social ramifications. And you can see poverty even heightened in the streets and and all the, you know, the the educational crisis that they're going through, riots on the streets. So that, that opened my eyes a bit more, more than before, you know. So it allowed me to understand that if I go to Sierra Leone or any, any other sort of even more developing nations, I need to take a, a step. So that 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 prepared me for it in many ways. But how do you go about Sierra Leone? It's 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 an interesting thing. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It and for me, for me what happened was the realization that you need to well you need to sacrifice something too. You know, your family, your friends, you need to leave that behind. And then and then if you prepare to do that, what are your options? In my case, having studied international business, I didn't have the background of development or environmental protection. So it meant that I needed to consider something even more, uh, you know, junior or something, you know, introductory in that sense. Uh, and that's, that's, that's where the good fortunes come in. But even, even then, so what happened was I was looking for, for, for options when I was in Montreal. And, and I came across this, this opportunity in Tanzania. And I went for it, the interviews went well. Uh, an offer did come through, and I accepted the offer. But then a week later, they called me back and said the budget, uh, you know, the budget that you know you were your position would have been funded from, 
it's collapsed, so we don't have any funding for you. So we have we can't bring you on board. Right. And that and that sort of that that's another realization actually, because at the same time, I had looked at Sierra Leone and I saw the and I saw the advert online. I clicked on it. I read. It looked interesting, but you know the the backstory of the country, Ebola and, and the war, and and I mean, it's not it's not positive. And then so, someone who I didn't know much about the history other than those two points. So what I did is I bookmarked the link, and and just parked it. And I parked it for a week, two weeks, and then while I'm sleeping, you know, your mind is going back to it. Why? Why? Why are you not? Why are you so scared about it? And then that Tanzania thing put everything into perspective. Basically, if you're, if I was willing to accept the role in in a more commercial, more developed environment, what's wrong with taking a job in a more in a country where help is 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 uh, you know most needed? So that's that's the relationship. Once I came to terms with that, I went back to the advert. I said, well, you need to approach this more from a rational perspective. You haven't even you're making the assumptions that it's not going to work out. The environment is unstable. So I said the least I could do is just go for an interview, have have a chat, and and see where that might lead me. And that's 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 how it all happened. Wow. Uh, so, it's, so, so so just to put everyone that's watching, we're listening up to speed. We're talking about the the Takugama Chimpanzee Sanctuary. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know what interest you had in um, in uh, in yeah. nature and and its preservation and specifically this species, but yeah. what exactly were you applying for? Like just developing this sanctuary, or what role did 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 you did you go there for? So it was for the yeah, it was for the program manager's position, basically running the day to day and and the the projects, the expansion, the vision. And uh, and that's that's something too. I mean, it's a good point you raised. And uh, I remember when I when the conversation started really becoming you know serious, and and I started realizing, wow, I might actually you know move to Sierra Leone. I remember as, as I was happy, I was I was really happy. But then a part of me was also embarrassed. Um, you know, if I told my friends or family that I've got this job at a sanctuary, at a chimp sanctuary, to me, it felt embarrassing. It just felt like people might perceive that as, you know, you're working in a zoo or, you know, you're working with with animals. It feels like I, I was my my harshest critic in the sense that I was projecting the voices in, in my head and saying, well, you're throwing away your education, you're going at a chimp sanctuary, what are you going to do financially? All these questions but then I, I had done my research and I saw the, you know, the, the potential of the place. And, and it's just, I mean, it's, it is a, it is all about rescuing the, the chimps and in, in the country. But I mean, now, now that I've had well, almost four years of working with them, I realized that it's not about the chimps. It's about the people because it's the people, it's the people inflicting the harm on the chimps and the environment. So in order to, you know, bring about change, you need to work with the people. And that's where it gets interesting. When you're working with people, you realize that there's a whole ecosystem of things that you need to consider for, for change to come through. And that's advocacy, that's livelihood projects, that's an education program, uh, ecotourism to a certain degree, uh, policy change, lobbying. Uh, so it's much more than a sanctuary. And uh, right. 
And that's that's the that's sort of the, the work I had done to inform myself. But when you get into it, you realize well, there's really nothing to, to be embarrassed about. It's something that, uh, and I'll say it maybe this way, um, George, it's the best decision I've done in my life. Yeah. I found I found my passion there, and later on I found my my partner, and that's that's like those are the you know the foundations of, of happiness. Is of isn't course, it? it's incredible because uh, and you know I've had this conversation with other uh, people you know our age who kind of followed that pattern that were boxed into right. You're brought up and you're told, look, you got to go to school, you got to get good grades, you got to get a good education yeah. so you can get a good job and be successful, right? And everyone is kind of in that rat race where maybe they're happy, maybe they're not, or maybe they don't know what else is out there for them, right? Uh, yeah. And I had the same conversation with another friend of mine who was in the car industry and he was, uh, he had a top position and, you know, a lot of money, the, 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 the dealership was doing well and stuff. And then from one day to the next, well, I don't know if it was one day, obviously there was some sort of reflection there. He left, yeah. that, he left all that behind to go run a fruit, mar like a, a fruits and vegetable uh, business, right? Yeah. That's what his family was in. And he was telling me the the criticism I got and the the, the misunderstanding in people's faces uh, was incredible. He like he wasn't expecting that, right? Uh, and uh, he he struggled for a uh, for a while because he felt like uh, I'm being judged, I'm being criticized. Is this the right decision? Am I falling victim to everyone else's opinion rather than what yeah. I believe in? And the truth of the fact is that he's really successful. Like the guy he's opening up, like he has a second store, they're opening up a third, like he's all over the place. The guy, he's doing super well mm. because similar to you, yeah. you find that passion uh, yeah. becomes the driving force, right? And what you do, and you really don't care about what people think or the opinion yeah. that other people make of you uh, as long as you're in that comfort zone where you know that one, you are... Um, uh, you're doing what you want and you're fulfilled with, with, uh, with what you're doing. What does it matter? Right. That's exactly it. I mean, the, the thing on my side, you know, that I was, I was wrong, basically, you're always going to have some people questioning your decisions and, and some criticism that come with that. That's I think that's normal and under any circumstances, but the, the part that I was wrong the close people that I felt were were questioning my decision or were not being supportive, they were actually very supportive. It's just that I had blocked them off and I didn't really, because I had made up my mind that, you know, I, you know it'll be sort of received in the wrong way, mm -hmm. I had blocked them out. And it turns out now that I've had conversations with them, family and friends, it turns out I was, I was wrong in that situation. Right. Right. Because of, because of maybe societal, you know, the way the way expectations are set on you, I think that that pressured me to believe that, yeah, there's no way they'll 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 sort of understand my decision or I'll get, they'll criticize it. So you don't even talk to them. You just block them out right away. You don't even care about their opinion. You're like I'm not going to talk to them. They're probably going to be against it. And yeah, it's just it 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 happened that way. And that's the part where, you know, I wish I could have done differently. But in in hindsight, now that uh, I'm in, a, I'm in a situation where I know that uh, what I've done is, is the right decision. It's easier to talk about it now. So I think I think also, I mean, talking to, to various people, I try to also tell them that, uh, um, you know, not necessarily inspire others, but to tell them that if you're un unsure about a decision, you know, you're, you're, you're 
naturally hesitating between a couple of options. The best way to to get to, to the bottom of that is take take more of a calculated risk in the sense that you know at least at least try it out. Try it out. Give yourself time to see you know if this possibility makes sense for you. If it doesn't, the thing that we're always sort of led to believe is once you take that decision, you're you're stuck going that down that path forever, which is not necessarily true. Yeah, you can always adjust, and that's the part that people don't realize, and they don't pursue some of these, you know, dream type, you know, adventures. Um, yeah, it's, but, a, it's 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 incredible. So so when when you're looking at this opportunity, are are you thinking? I'm going to go, it seems like a good mission. I'm going to help them develop. Do you understand the consequences and all, you know, all these other players and all these other th- things that are attached to this cause? Or are you just thinking, okay, this is an interesting opportunity. Uh, I can go make a difference. Uh, I'll help them develop. I'll use my experience um, to, to help the sanctuary grow and to, 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 to promote its mission. But are you aware of everything else in that ecosystem? Like you mentioned before, the policy, the politicians, the society, the community, um, in general, the cause, the environmental conservation and animal uh, conservation. Like, are, do you have this understanding? Well, it's it's difficult. I mean, that's the thing that I'm still adjusting many ways. It's easy it's easy to talk about the achievements and and the the cha- the impact that I've done. But also, I've come to realize, even after all these years of working, there's still things that, you know, that are still coming up and, and learning and, and trying to see how that fits. And not just in, in Sierra Leone, but in, in West Africa and, and, you know, try to get these some of these proven, you know, concepts, methodologies scaled up and, and to see, you know, when, for, for example, when you're talking about carbon schemes and, and national park protection and I mean, all of that, all of that sounds good, but then none of that is possible unless you know the communities, the people realize what are their essential requirements and and all of that. So you need to really start by the basics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and learning the people in that environment takes time as well. You know, you, you just, I mean, it's just the impression that uh, a white man from from you know the Western upbringing is coming to Africa and. You know, you don't want to give that impression out as well. So that's the thing. You need to try to try to communicate with the, the locals and make them understand that you're not there for any, um, you know, incentives. It's just more creating a basis where you're trying to improve their lives. And by improving their lives uh, without much interference in terms of this is the way you should be leading your life, but right. provide concrete examples of how to provide education for their for their kids and and putting in place things that you know necessarily replace their their current habits like you know some of the people that i've met even the basic fundamental examples for example you know they go out and in, into the national parks and cut down the trees and they're doing that because they don't have any other means of providing for their family you know the energy heating and cooking and that's what they need but if you explain to them What's what harm they're causing? They all of a sudden, even without much education, they understand that their kids down the line will struggle more than they are struggling. Yeah. So it's putting it into context and understanding that. In terms of the more technical aspects, George, it's complicated. I mean, we're still talking about West Africa, where the history is well documented, and there's corruption, and there's um, you know there's big bigger issues at stake. So to come in and, and 
to to navigate from you know through those sort of landscapes it takes years and uh for sure still still learning that um it's it's an ongoing process um but as you mentioned a lot of the things i think from the international background you know the you know the development side getting funding and setting in place you know the foundations of development and and budgeting and analysis and monitoring and evaluation those became very relevant and and those i relied on those parts and then that sort of bought me time to to learn more about i knew nothing about gems like nothing yeah all i knew was you know there are closest ancestors but other than that i didn't know anything about gems yeah that comes to you over the course of the years it comes to you and uh so tell so tell me how does this whole thing come to existence like what what's the, what's the backstory of this sanctuary the 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 man who founded the sanctuary is, is I mean, he's he's beyond inspirational. Um, and his story is also, I mean, his story is the one we should be really talking about because without him, none of this would be sort of possible. He's he's a Sri Lankan origin. He's uh, born and raised in, in Sri Lanka. And uh, at the, and his mom, his mother used to be a, a teacher. And, uh, at some point in the in the 70s and, and late 70s, the government of Sierra Leone, there were you know bilateral relations, and they were looking for you know science teachers to come and make an impact and teach the kids about engineering and, and all of the the syllabus basically. And he came with his his mother at the age of 17, and he was an accountant, and he was sort of this, this man. And there's similarities between both of us, and I think that's what sort of bonded us. He used to be uh, living life in the fast lane as well, fast cars, uh, chasing girls, and and just like you told me earlier, it's like I, I didn't think you'd be, in, you know, you'd get involved in this industry one day. His parents and his friends thought the same. I mean, he was he was an accountant, no formation in in you know wildlife conservation or environmental protection, but he what how he became sort of attached and connected to this world is him and his wife one day they were in the provinces traveling in 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 one of the communities in Sierra Leone and they came across uh, a chimp tied to a tree a baby chimp like um two two years old some in, in that sort of age age group and and he sort of he hesitated but then he knew that he, he needs to do something you know and uh the the, the interesting part is at that point and I suppose we all we all have an option, right? So he was he was presented in his mind with two options: either you walk away with, from from that scene and you do nothing, or you you do something without having any knowledge of chimps or whatsoever, and you figure it out. And that's what he did, and and he's been figuring it out ever since. There's a lot of things that you know us, you know, people from from the outside, including myself you don't know about but then figuring out is not as difficult as 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 long as you've got the will and the commitment so what he did is he he purchased a chimp he took the chimp home with uh and then he raised it at his house and then next thing you know he was he was finding more chimps needing rescuing so at one point he had six chimps living in his house and then chimps after four or five years old they become bigger and you know they they're they're troublemakers. They're like uh, they're chewing your clothes and they need a lot of food and and they're aggressive and and they're strong and 
So that's that's when the idea of establishing a uh, you know a chimp sanctuary came came to mind, and that's that's how it started. I mean, was this in, was this common practice at that time? I mean, what year are we talking about? We're talking about nineties now. So when when he first rescued the chimp that I mentioned, 19, 1989. So, and and then you're talking about a, a time in in it's a common practice basically. Even even the current president of Sierra Leone. When he was the he was in charge of, of the army, he had two chimps in his compound, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's basically well you can look at it a few ways. It's a sign of prestige. You've got an exotic animal, which a lot of other sort of countries have. You know, people raising tigers in their houses, and so it's a it's 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 that coupled with you know ignorance, I suppose, to to you know to to a level. So. But it's not uncommon. A lot of people had chimps in there as pets, and and that's one of the reasons why chimps are being hunted and and you know raised as pets. There's a lot of money involved into too. So trafficking. When you look at trafficking, and uh, yeah, so he had six of them living in his house. And he, you know, it's it's <laughs> at some point you need to do something. You can't you can't continue. The, the neighbors complaining. Um, <laughs> I remember he tells me stories, like unreal stories of he needed to take the chimps out in the forest, uh, you know, f- for fresh air and, and that sort of stuff. And and he's driving them, basically. And people can see two semi, <laughs> semi-grown chimps in the car in the passenger seat. And uh, <laughs> the belt on so, the seat belt. <laughs> yeah, seat belt and the chimps riding in, in the passenger seat. So, yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, but he didn't ask for this life either. He he sort of got sucked into it, and right. the more he got into it, he realized that the country has a deeper, you know, there's a bigger issue at stake that you need to solve. Yeah, because I was reading, I was doing some research just to prepare, and uh, there were no laws for this before. And essentially, because of the work that was done through the sanctuary, uh, now this is an illegal practice in in Sierra Leone. Yeah, we've done we've done some you know good works and we've made some strides in the last year. So one of the projects that I worked on two years ago was uh, a lot of lobbying to with the government and working you know very closely with them, and and they saw the value of the chimp as uh, and I'll and I'll get into it a bit more later. But they they saw the value and they declared the chimp as the country's national animal in the face of tourism. Mm. It's significant because then you're sending a message to other nations, you know, especially regional countries, that you can actually make a difference by instituting policies. And once you've got those policies in place, then you can add complementary pieces to it. And one of the things we're doing now is uh, working on sort of changing the 1972 Wildlife Act. So 1972, George, imagine how outdated that thing is. And I had a look at it. Uh, I've been working on it. And the law says, to this date, you're allowed to to kill two chimps a year, and the penalty is less than a dollar uh, for that. So, I mean, we still have a lot of work ahead of us, but those pieces become easier when you've got policy in place and the government begins to see the value. The other thing is we, we've been fortunate now that they see the value uh, because if you position the image of the chimp, you know, in, in the right way, then that that leads to job creation. You can you can build an ecotourism circuit around it. People can come and visit and 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 see that. Uh, also, the natural habitat. But then you can also by by clearly 
uh, spelling out and, and sort of highlighting the links between chimps in general and the environment. For instance, you know, the chimps natural habitat is the forest. The forest and the trees are responsible for, for the water catchments. It's the roots and the trees that are uh, forming the water basins. Uh, and, the, and the water is responsible for food security and, and the welfare of the people. So if you sort of make that connection and 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 convey the message at the highest levels of government and get funding in place to protect the catchments and the forest and prevent deforestation and 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 establish those those links to minimize poaching and not just the chimps but all all wildlife species in the country uh -huh. then then you're also improving the welfare of the communities in the country as a whole then you improve you also you're contributing to gdp um, and you're creating secondary and tertiary industries. Uh, so that's 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 the that's the ecosystem. Everything is basically interconnected. Tell me, uh, uh, because this basically was all created before the Civil War over there uh, in the early '90s, correct? It was created, yeah, 1995 during the war. Um, so how how did that uh, how did that uh, uh, you know political instability have an impact? Uh, I mean, how, let's let's talk about that. But also, I want to get later about the current political uh, situation uh, yeah. and if it's any better or if there's still those challenges ahead. But you know, at that time when you know this the, the sanctuary is being uh, put in, put into place. You have this uprising that's going on in Sierra Leone. Uh, what kind of impact does that have? Well, it's 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 huge. I mean, if you talk to the to to Bala, Bala is the founder. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. I mean, there's books written about him, and uh, he's he's won very. I mean, he's won numerous awards. But the thing that you know sets him aside is his will and his perseverance. Um, the the context of the war. The war, the war started in the north, in, in, in Kono, in those areas, the mining areas, and it trickled down to Freetown slowly. But uh, during the first couple of years of the war, you know, not a lot of people thought the war would actually reach Freetown. Right. And they all sort of went about their, their ways and, and they said, well, it's not going to affect us. It seems to be more of a regional conflict. Uh, to go even further than that, I mean, you can, you can make a case actually more than the case that the war was manufactured by you know Liberia and, and Charles Taylor at the time. You know, he basically created Fode Sanko in the rebel movement and that's how it all started. So not many people sort of grasped that this this might come to Freetown, but it did. Uh but 1995 for for him specifically there was a need. There was a need to establish something because he couldn't raise the chimps at the house anymore. So he needed to do something. He managed to get 40,000 euros from EU um, based in Freetown. And that's what started the sanctuary. He didn't realize that it's going to get chaotic. And, and it did. And, and, and the sanctuary was ransacked twice by, by the rebels. The rebels infiltrated and they looted. And, and, but they didn't do anything to the, to the chimps. In fact, in fact, when they came over to the to the sanctuary and 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 surprisingly, the relationship with the the founder and the rebels was good, and I mean good in in the sense that the rebels said, "Well, we don't have any issues with the animals; our issues are with the people." And these are people chopping the hands of of people in the neighboring villages, but they didn't do anything to the chimps. All they did is they stole the, 
you know, items from the sanctuary, medicine and, and that sort of stuff. And, and they left the, the place intact. The interesting thing is, and this is where Bala had to play the politics. He had to, he had to play both sides. On one side, Ekomog, you know, the, the, the regional sort of forces, Nigerians included, and the rebels. And the rebels were key for him because he needed the rebels' protection to get milk into the sanctuary for the chimps. Right. And, and on a couple of instances, the rebels smuggled in uh, milk for the chimps. So you can see how he was using both sides. But, I mean, talk about volatile periods. I mean, sometimes it's difficult to to understand the, the image of what Freetown looked like during those days. I mean, people being executed at checkpoints to a point where he was he was evacuated to, to uh, there's a reticent, you know, in, in, in the capital, which they've got bunkers and things. Outside, outside the hotel, at one point towards the end of the war, uh, there was one payphone, and that's the that's the one, the only one available where you can call his family, because his family, they evacuated him to the UK. So every day or every other day, he used to go outside Radisson and make run towards the payphone where there's bullets flying nearby, go call his family go back to the bunker and then repeat the same thing every every day. So, yeah, the war eventually did hit Freetown hard and, uh, I mean, fighting on the streets as well. So not the not the ideal time to, to establish a sanctuary, but sometimes when you've got a vision and funding was secured, you go ahead with it. How's the situation now? I mean, it's completely different. Um to a point when people ask me what Sierra Leone is look like, the first thing I say, this country doesn't get the the recognition it deserves. And when I say country, I, I mean the people. I mean, one of the nicest sort of, you know, a natural intrinsic kindness to a point you, you question yourself sometimes, like, are they being kind because they want something in return? Or you question it, but it's not the case. Uh, these are people who've seen hard times. Um, other nations have as well, um, but I suppose factor in the poverty and 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 you know, especially in the last year, the the amount of devastation that they've seen back to back and, and in close sort of intervals, it's remarkable the resiliency that they have. Um, to a point in 2017 when I went, I I went. Um, I arrived in Freetown in in May, and we had a big landslide. Uh, you know, a couple of months later, five months later, August, and well, close to three thousand people died. So you you see, and and when you look at the people, they just pick up the pieces. Let's continue, uh, and it's that sort of mentality. But there's progress, George, um, and it's progress in in the right way. We've got a government now. Um, the opposition party came into power in 2018. Uh, you know, a smooth transition, no violence, nothing. Um, and they've they've made some some real changes. So they have they've got a uh, you know free education now, primary level and and secondary level. Uh, it's monumental. Uh, they're working on a lot of new initiatives, um, building the roads and and ramping up the institutions. Uh, so I think I think they're on the right track, but you know sometimes it needs more than a couple of years of stability because if 
in we're getting close to elections now. If the opposition now comes into power again, then then they might say, well, that's not our priority, and then the, sort of a reset will happen. So it's a uh, it's an interesting one, but the country doesn't get the credit it deserves, and and I and I can say that from just from a visual visual standpoint, it is one of the most beautiful countries. Uh, and then, <laughs> so when I go on, I used to go on my day offs to the to the beach. I used to be selfishly happy that you know I've got the entire beach to myself. But then you you know you're involved in these uh, ecotourism projects and and you're working on rebranding the country. And you say to yourself, well, if this becomes successful, people will start coming, and you'll lose this privacy that you've got. But yeah can't be selfish it's like you gotta you gotta keep pushing tell me about obviously i mean clearly locally there there's a there's a huge amount of impact that has come out of that sanctuary both uh, obviously in favor of wildlife preservation but also in terms of you know the the the, the governance the, the governance and and you know the political uh changes as well uh, that have been, yeah. you know, the monumental changes that you've mentioned how is, uh, uh, you know, whatever you're doing, what kind of impact do you have, like in other countries that are also um, uh, working in this sort of trajectory? We're getting to a point where uh, there's there's a lot more sort of inquiries coming in, whether we, we can replicate some of the stuff that we've done in Sierra Leone elsewhere. Um, I had an interesting call today and... Uh, with uh, a big consulting firm in in the U.S., uh, there's no there's no real reason to mention names, but the, the the conversations that I had is on, for example, on the education side. Uh, we're working on, um, you know, over the years we've developed our own environmental workbook. Uh, it's got 13 lessons, and we've been working with 26 schools implementing that workbook. And earlier this year, we reached um, a new sort of milestone, working with the Minister of Education to, to begin integrating that workbook into the national curriculum. So kids at the primary level to begin with will, will learn more about, you know, the importance of hygiene, One Health, the implications of zoonotic diseases like COVID, uh, the effects of deforestation, and then conservation more at, at an in-depth level, where in the past it's been non-existent. So... To, to have that level of impact, it's quite, I mean, it's encouraging, um, you know, and I'm and just proud of the team to, to, to have reached that level. But what that does is now all of a sudden you've got a, you've got a concept that people are, are, in, are becoming interested, especially to begin with at the regional level, because you've got chimps in Liberia and Guinea and Guinea-Bissau. Because you've got a proven sort of content and curriculum already in place, you can easily package that and then begin implementing that in those neighboring countries. Uh, but to, to take that even further, uh, what we've done on, on the grounds in terms of our work, we, we work with uh, in three of the four national parks in the country. And one of the things we do in those national parks, uh, we, we identify, hire and train local community equi-guards. And they're basically like rangers and they patrol the areas we provide them with training, reconnaissance, and tactical training, communications, and all of that, and and they become sort of accountable for those areas. But they're also collecting data, and in terms of what species they're encountering, what are the areas that need immediate intervention and reforestation. So what we've done is that training mechanism of, of those guards 
people are now in, in, in neighboring countries. They're asking if we can provide similar training and create those rangers in, in their countries as well. Right. So some of these things are replicable and, and you can scale them up as well. Um, so that's that's encouraging to to see that, you know, some of the work that we're doing is actually not just paying dividends in Sierra Leone, but it, it can help other countries as well. Yeah, it's interesting to see that there is uh, the political will, like you said, because, I mean, you can come in and have any idea you want, but the minute that you're getting all these obstacles, especially from government, it could be a little bit tougher, right, uh, to, to, to get through. And the fact that there's that door that is open that allows yeah. you to kind of navigate those waters and you get the, the, the proper help um, uh, to push through those channels obviously makes a big difference, right? And that's why I was asking, like in the neighboring countries, is there that kind of will to, uh, to make that difference? It's different. I mean, governments, governments, and and especially in West Africa, there are different stages of of development and and sort of gaining, um, you know, their you know building their industries because of different reasons, because of interests, because of you know available natural resources and and that sort of thing. But the good thing about Sierra Leone, I mean, these things, I mean, they. They haven't been easy. I'll 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 leave it at that. They, it requires a lot of pushing, a lot of negotiation at that government ministerial level to to make them understand that if if we don't intervene now, um, then you'll have nothing left to 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 base on you know your economic policies on. So it is it is in your best interest to act now. Uh, and then you, if you look at, for example, countries like Sierra Leone, when when I mentioned the the landslide. Or any or any natural disasters. Um, traditionally, they've been focusing on on sort of the um, the aftermath, the the emergency response, right? But the missing component is uh, the prevention, and prevention is much. It costs much less, George, than and then coming up and and sort of reparation and, and fixing things. It's much less, and and it's ridiculously easy to do. I mean, it doesn't even cost a fraction of it. All you need to do is put in place mechanisms where people understand their actions, provide support wherever needed, and and some light infrastructure whenever possible. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what they've ignored in the past. Like you look at uh, uh, the landslide is a perfect case because it's smaller on the scale in terms of you know lives lost and and the impact. But still, three thousand people died. Yeah, uh, and and a lot of money came pouring in from from other governments and NGOs and, and donations, uh, a lot, and and I'm not even sure to this point uh, to this date um, if that money was used in the right way. I mean, I, I know that to a point, you know, procurement came in and and they took a lot of that money, and who knows where that money ended up. But 50 million. I mean, we're talking about a lot of money. But for preparedness, all you need is I mean, we, we've been doing the same sort of work on national scale with budgets less than a million. So it's possible. You just need to, um, and I know why the government does that. I mean, they know that money will pour in and, and they're fine with that. But our conscience doesn't allow us to go by that way. You know, we, we need to set the, the bar high and it's it's ethical, right? I mean, we've got responsibility to donors. We can't go about doing that. So that's um, that's... It's on our moral conscience, I guess. How does uh, 
How does the funding work? It's mostly NGOs and uh, government? Or, I mean, is there any uh, revenue, uh, any sources of revenue from the, the, the sanctuary itself? Yeah, the sanctuary itself, we do get some, some grants. Um, you know, there's not too many grants out there that provide funding for animal welfare, but there are some, and we do get money from them. But we've, we've expanded now, and, and the projects, for example, working on now an ecotourism project, uh, we work in 70, about 70 plus communities, and we've got about 15,000 15, direct annual beneficiaries a year. So the projects that we do, we've got livelihood support because you can't tell people that, well, stop cutting down the trees and stop you know, hunting the wildlife and, and thus. You need to replace that behavior with something, an alternative livelihood. So what we do in, in parts of the country, for example, we've got a project in a mangrove area where there are oysters on the, on the roots of the mangroves. And we've been working with 40, almost 50 women now to sustainably harvest the oysters and, and empower them and, and teach them about how everything is interconnected and create jobs. And, and that project is working well now. But if we scale that project, for example, and we create you know smoked oysters and, and package them and sell it sell them to markets in Freetown and possibly exports down the line, then you create sustainability. Mm-hmm. And those revenues will go back into the operations so that finances, whatever they need, equipments, boats, um, you know, money to to nurse mangroves and do planting around those areas. So that's that's one example. Uh, we rely on grants. So this ecotourism project that I'm working on, it's basically in, in four districts uh, and we want to establish ecologists and, and get people to come and visit. And again, the money generated will go back into. So it becomes almost like a circular circular economy. So you're creating activities. The activities are done by the rangers in the case of hiking, bird watching, and, and those salaries are paid by the, the guests. So again, back into the operation. So it's a combination of things. Um, also looking into merchandising, cross-sector partnership, uh, CSR program. Um, at the Sanctuary, for example, last year we we implemented, a, we constructed a new area. It's a spa area where people go for massages. Uh, it's, just, it's basically expanding the portfolio. Uh, and it's a combination. And the, the, the biggest piece that's missing is uh, we don't get any funding from the government. So it's, it's, a, it's a big gap. Yeah, but that, and that's why I'm asking, because from what you're saying, it seems that you've opened those channels. There is support. People are listening to you. Uh, you've implemented uh, changes in the law. Now you're looking at uh, the other bill. Uh, and it it's strange that these partners that you're already working f- with, aren't uh, supporting you financially. Yeah, that's that's the thing. We're hoping to change that. But change comes in small incremental pieces. Right. You know, that 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 declaration of the chimp as the country's national animal, it's a, it's a considering everything, you know, historically in the country, it's a huge step. So based on that, now we can start demanding other things. Right. But that's a big component. How... Um what kind of impact do you think you guys have like at an international stage? Like, I mean, you've proven your expertise locally. There's countries, uh, neighboring countries that are looking at what you're doing so that they can kind of copy paste it in their uh, jurisdictions. 
what's happening internationally with this specific cause and in general, just wildlife preservation and how much role do you guys have specifically in that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's gaining gaining more traction. Um, I mean, from a personal standpoint, I've I left uh, I left Freetown about six months ago. Um, you know, while I was working at the sanctuary, I met my partner, and uh, she she visited the sanctuary one day um, while I was working, um, and and at the end of the, I mean, just before she was leaving, she. She asked me out and I freaked out. I had this sort of, you know, worried face that, uh, you know, I was so focused on what I had to do that day that I didn't even think that this this lady would, would ask me out. And when she did, I was completely puzzled. Not because, you know, I didn't, I wasn't interested. It's because your mind, it's got so many other things, you know, lurking in the background and you're getting asked here. Anyways, eventually things, I mean, not, not today, we went out a couple of times, and and she she eventually moved with me at the uh, at the sanctuary. So we're both living in the jungle. She stayed. We lived together there for two years. Uh, she volunteered for Takugama. She volunteered for other women organizations. Um, and then towards the end, she realized that you know there's something missing in her personal life. She needed a change. You know, she's she's a senior lawyer, and and she wasn't developing her own career. And I understood that. So we we looked at her options and. We said maybe it makes sense for us to 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 go to the UK, and that's what happened. She got a job at the University of Oxford, um, and and I realized, well, this could be an opportunity for for both of us. Uh, she can advance her career, and I can I can move to the UK where there's there's a lot of interest there, and in, and in, you know specifically to Sierra Leone because Sierra Leone used to be a, a British colony. And there are a lot of a lot of conservation-based organizations in, in London and in Oxford, Cambridge, uh, a lot of interest to to support and, and contribute to the cause. But also the proximity to the media. If if I'm suppose I'm I'm you know in Oxford and I'm linking up with these organizations, my presence there alone would sort of uh, trigger an interest, uh, and and the fact that I'll be going back and forth. I mean, I'm still I'm still going to go to Freetown at least three four times a year. It creates a connection through me to, and then sets that you know link between UK and Sierra Leone. But the other part of your question is, George. I think it's in the best interest of not just UK organizations and the government, but all all countries uh, to f- for the sake of climate change. Um, because it, it's got a ripple effect, um, and and for several reasons. Suppose, and I know I know that the deforestation rates in Sierra Leone are incredibly high. There's only about less than five percent primary forest left, and there's huge illegal logging. Uh, the Chinese are through local communities are illegally logging inside the national parks, and they're shipping the lumber back to China. Um, so that's. And that's going to run out at some point. So once once they you know they're through with Sierra Leone, they're going to go into neighboring countries, and eventually this it'll have an effect where, you know, they're they're going from country to country, and the natural resources are diminishing. That's got effects on on you know the the exports, but also creates effects on demand from from Western countries as well. Uh, and at some point. If you're if you can't offset the emissions anymore, 
and that's contributing to global warming. So that's the that's the effect. So people people think ah, it's a small country in in West Africa. I mean, what what can we realistically change there? But that's that's where the that's where the 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 mindset needs to change. The perception is that I mean, yes, there are a lot of challenges, but we we alone have have changed a lot. So imagine if we had more support, more funding, more knowledge of what this entails, then we can do a lot more. You know, it, it seems to me, and I mean, it's not, um, I mean, it's not new, but you know, Africa in general as a as a continent has been kind of neglected, right? Uh, taken advantage of for obviously its resources, and, and it just feels like. Uh, the easy solution is just to keep doing that, right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's Africa. Don't worry about it. You know, well, like it, it, it seems as though they're uh, playing on a different playing field. Um, and there's a lot of studies now demonstrating that the next phase uh, of uh, social, political, and just, you know, economic emergence is going to come out yeah. of Africa. Um, so I, I'm just curious to know, how much protection is going to be offered to stuff that you're like that you're involved in right rather than just to go the path of i don't want to say western societies but just in general developing nations yeah it's it's um it's really unfortunate isn't it i mean and it's by design that africa is always kept at uh in that sort of you know model because if you keep africa in, in that sense, then then there's a lot of profits that, that come out of it. And that's by design. Um, but Africa has, I mean, it's got a lot of potential. Uh, you know, the, the landscape is conducive to a lot of things, uh, both from, from an agricultural point of perspective, uh, which, which, you know, I mean, 50% of, of Sierra Leone's GDP is still agriculture. So it's a big component and it's still got a lot more potential in terms of doing new innovative ways of uh, harvesting crops and, and, you know, that, that sort of thing. But it also, it's got, it's got potential for other things as well. Like when you talk about renewable energy um, and, and combining that with the ecotourism potential, the beauties of the beaches, I mean, Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone has one of the richest biodiversities in the world so you've got you've got your the, the mountains the river streams the islands uh but also on the countryside you've got a lot of uh the species right the, the wildlife side those are all you know revenue generating possible mechanisms which i mean take the case of rwanda rwanda's managed to create an entire industries on gorillas alone and they've done that and they've used funding from that to create tech industries and now you've got uh, the automotive sector there, Volkswagen has a plant there. Uh, when you look at the mobile technology, and and it's and it's based on innovation, and and that model in the case of Sierra Leone, and we're hoping to do a similar type of approach. I mean, different sort of uh, pieces in place, but creating that sort of um, you know potential jumping point where you have innovation at the core. And with free education now being provided to the to the youth, you can generate a lot more ideas and and keep pushing the boundaries of what Sierra Leone in Africa should be. Right. Because I can tell you, I mean, I've come across a lot of kids with no sort of high levels of education, 
who who are I mean they're whiz kids basically and it doesn't take much all you need is a bit of nurturing support and and show these kids that you it is possible to make a, a you know a difference in that sort of way and you can actually create either an entrepreneurial you know business a concept and and make a living out of this which whereas traditionally the country doesn't have scientists people working in conservation renewable energy you know it's it's either agriculture fisheries or that's it there's not much else right whereas if you develop that then you human capacity intellectual you know uh the side comes into it. and that's what we need uh it's a shame that it's neglected um and uh we're 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 trying to change that and it's not easy Tell me about the the challenges that that are that are left ahead of you guys. Uh, obviously, you're mentioning all these changes, societal, political, economic. Um, yeah. What are the goals now that are in place? For us, for us, it's um, as you keep as you keep growing and as a, as an organization, you're putting yourself in a in a in a good situation because a lot of people are sort of depending on you. Uh, and and you're doing good in that sense. You're improving lives. You're providing access to health and and clean energy and and food. So that's that's what you know we're we're striving to do. And we're being fortunate that so far it's it, it's been productive. But at the same time, when you've got that many dependents depending on you, it puts a lot of I wouldn't say pressure, but you know a fiscal responsibility as well. Where is this funding going to come from? So funding continues to be. Uh, a challenge, and I don't know. Sometimes, you know, you, depending of, of of the moment of the year, you know, we just had a couple of days ago. We we received a grant um, from the European Union. It's it's basically a three year project at three point two million for the protection of one of the national parks. So it's it's a sizable grant, but it, when you look at the components of the grant, three years, three point two, it's really nothing, George. When you look at how much you need to do in that park. Right. Uh, and what what you need to deliver it becomes it becomes very small and that money will disappear quickly three years is nothing so that's that's the, that's the issue constantly looking ahead trying to see how how to make this whole thing sustainable because we're going to run into issues and, and i know that and that's what is always it's a concern of mine the bigger we grow more funding or more sort of we're we're exposing ourselves as well from that point of view but i think I think it goes back to what I said earlier, making, introducing components that are driving revenues and then you create that sustainable thing. But that's that's also a thing. The second thing, I guess, challenges, I mean, we briefly talked about it earlier, is the government. Is this is this period of stability, stability going to last? When there's stability, even in short times, I mean, the president now is coming coming to an end his term four years they that that also quickly coming goes and during stability even in that short time we've done a lot but is the next administration going to be as willingness to cooperate are we going to have this level of stability are they going to have the same appetite to contribute to you know the the cause the environmental side um what are they what are their interests are they but you know what? Let me ask you something because it's interesting that you're bringing it up. I mean, what kind of government relations do you guys do? I mean, do you guys only work with the government, or are you are you building uh, and trying to maintain relationships with all parties that are in government, whether they're in opposition? Because eventually, like you're saying, 
maybe there will come a time that the the, the people governing now won't be there and <laughs> the opposition will be in their place. So wouldn't it be beneficial to just have relations with everyone? Yeah, that's that's in a sense that that's what we do. Yeah, we can't we can't predict the future, but we can we can shape the future by having as many relationships on the ground. Yeah. The other thing is the the approach should be an approach where you're not looking at stakeholders or people as as much as which party is they're part of you're looking at how many people or what how can i how how can i expand my reach and reach out to as many people's people as possible and not that you know i mean it goes beyond which political party they're in because even even the opposition even if they've got differentiating sort of viewpoints or philosophies there is one underlying thing that sort of links us all up and that's money mm-hmm. if you if you generate money for the country and you and you happen to be doing it in a sustainable way then you've got their interest and and we've found a way to do that so that gives us a lot of negotiation negotiation power nice is there other uh, is there other organizations like yours involved in uh, wildlife preservation and environmental uh, uh, activity? There's there's uh, there's smaller organizations uh, and there's one big one that I can think of that they're doing good work, but that's those are the two organizations and that's that's a problem in itself. You look at Kenya for example. Kenya has all the big players there. You got you got WWF. Greenpeace, uh, all these big institutions that have deep pockets, and and of course they're all attracted. There, there's a reason why they're there. You know, it's not just the biodiversity; it's because there's there's uh, there's commercial interest there. We we don't have that, so we're trying to change that approach for a couple of reasons. Not to attract that commercial interest. Uh, we're changing we're changing the approach to get awareness, so people. For me, for me, one of the things I got excited, for example, when you reached out and you wanted to ask me if I wanted to do the podcast is because it's interesting. I mean, how can we, it's part of the thing that earlier, you know, we talked about, how do we get interest in Montreal for a cause that in Sierra Leone, which a lot of people have never heard of, or they don't know much about. So that's, for us, that's a big victory. If we, if we can raise awareness in the right way and get, you know, people interested and more knowledgeable about what's going on and then possibly even getting them to contribute actively, then that's a big victory. I mean, it's not just, you know, commercial success in the end. It's just getting those pieces in place. Absolutely. Uh, I've kept you on for a long time and we're going to wrap it up. Uh, just last thing, because I saw that, I think it was, a, I can't remember if it was on your Instagram or I can't remember where I saw it. Uh, there were some pictures with Jane Goodall. Uh, yeah. Tell me about this incredible person uh, that I'm, I'm assuming you got to meet and that has had such a huge impact. Uh, she's uh, she's amazing. Uh, yeah, well, she stayed she stayed with us for three days, spent a lot of times with her, uh, had had a lot of drinks with her. I mean, be, <laughs> she's she's into scotch, and uh, I remember we had a lot of nights where you know, a couple of drinks and, and she's, I mean, she leaves you speechless in the end. I mean, you realize she's 85 now. Um, she's still pushing forward to get things done because she realizes that, you know, from a selfish point of view, she's running out of time and there's so much still to do. But when you talk to her, I mean, she's a celebrity in many ways. I mean, 
uh, there's films about her and, and, you know, she's been received by dignitaries and she's given talks at Davos and the economic forum there and all of this stuff. And then when you talk to her, you don't realize that any of that, you know, she's just, that's that, that young Jane who went to Tanzania when she was young, trying to discover herself and, and trying to find her way. She's still at that level, George. And the things that she talks about uh, is, is, I mean, it's remarkable. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of respect there and there's a lot of support there. We, I, I speak to her from time to time still. We've, we've kept in touch. She lives, she lives in the UK. She's not that far away from, from where I am now. So when, when things go back to normal, probably go see her and have a scotch or something. But uh, you know what I say to people, George, is basically, you know, guys, people like Jane and, and Bala, the founder of the sanctuary, they've, they've sacrificed their, their entire lives to get these things in motion and get things done. But if you really look at it from at the core, you don't need many people sacrificing their lives. Yeah. You've got people already doing that. You've got people like Greta. I mean, she's young, but she's got a whole career in front of her and she's, she's sacrificed a lot. All we need is people doing small incremental, you know, volunteering here and there, supporting the causes, you know, getting that sort of understanding of what's required that's that's what it re- requires, and that's what I learned from her. It doesn't take, you know, these sacrifice to that level. It's just doing your part. Dude, I'm gonna let you go. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. It was I don't even know how to describe it, dude. I mean, it's been so long, and I'm just so happy that I got to to see you again, <laughs> just chat. And uh, I'm I'm very proud of the stuff that you're doing. And I and I whenever you appeared on social media, and I started following uh i was very impressed man and uh i'm glad that you found your way there and uh it's uh, it's amazing it was amazing to talk to you george when i saw when i saw the message come through i got emotional and <laughs> and i showed and i showed the message to to my partner holly and i said look i mean that sort of proved that it's come full circle and i feel comfortable about myself and and happy that yeah. i get to I've reached a level where I'm comfortable talking about these things and I appreciate it, George. It, it means a lot to support and, and thanks. Thanks for sending that message. It means a lot. Any plans on coming back to Montreal soon for a visit? I haven't been back. Yeah. I haven't been back for two years, but uh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to get the vaccine in the next month or two and then maybe July, August. So when I come, yeah, well, I'll come see you in person. Yeah, man. Absolutely. <laughs> all right buddy take good care of yourself we'll talk soon and you and and say hi to everyone there say hi to jimmy peter everyone there i will man i will (laughs) take care thanks